without further ado, uh, I, let me introduce uh, Becky. So Dr. Becky Tucker is a senior data scientist at Netflix, a streaming media entertainment company based in Los Gatos, California. She works on the content science and algorithms team, which is located in Los Angeles. She holds a PhD in physics from Caltech. And at, at Netflix, Becky works on models that predict that the demand for TV shows and movies. So without further ado, do you want to take it away? All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, uh, as Michael said, I am a data scientist at Netflix. What I wanted to talk about today um, is a little bit about how we are using data science at Netflix um, to predict demand for content. And I call this beyond recommendations because I know that when you say Netflix and data science, um, the first people think people think about is, of course, the Netflix recommendations algorithms. Um, but of course, uh, Netflix is an extremely data-driven company. And we apply data science to every aspect of the user experience, including content. Um, and uh, and uh, one of and I think that's one of the more interesting and more nuanced uh, ways that we're using data science. Um, but I did just want to start briefly with um, some background about Netflix. I'm sure the vast majority of you uh, are completely familiar with it, but um, just just to provide context. Um, so Netflix started as a uh, DVD service in 1999. Um, many of you will remember those ubiquitous red envelopes. Um, at one point, they were mailing more than 2 million discs per day. Uh, we became a streaming service in 2007. Uh, some of you may remember that our big title at that time was Heroes. I know I myself actually joined to watch Heroes at the time. Um, 2012 was another major moment for us. That's when we started creating our own original content. So this is content produced uh, by Netflix for Netflix. Um, House of Cards, I think, flashiest um, uh, original uh, content, although uh, many people mistakenly think that it was the first piece of original content. That was actually um, Lilyhammer. Uh, it just wasn't quite as memorable and as successful as House of Cards. And then our most recent um, uh, big change was that we expanded to global um, in early 2016. And so um, you can now view Netflix basically anywhere in the world except for, I think, China, North Korea, and Syria. Um, and this also includes a change in some of our original programming strategies where we are also now producing Netflix originals for non-American markets. So um, that would be things like, like Club de Cuervos in Mexico, um, Marseille in France or Terrace House in Japan, if uh, any of you want to check those out. Um, a little bit about Netflix today. Um, we have 93 million members um, available worldwide. Um, and then just to speak to a little bit of the, the amount of data that we could be dealing with um, for any particular algorithm or analysis, um, we do support um, a lot of devices. Netflix is available on laptops, smartphones, gaming consoles, smart TVs, um, pretty much anything Anything that streams uh, has Netflix. Um, there are more than 3 billion hours watched per month, which to us translate to more than 100 billion events logged every day. Um, at the highest point, I I think we were 36% of uh, peak U.S. downstream traffic, according to Sandvine. Um, and that's actually declined over the past year due to us getting better at encoding um, our content. Um, uh, and all of this is just to 
to bring home the fact that we are we are living in a really big data world. So um, our data lives on AWS. We access it with um, with tools that many of you will be familiar with, since they're things that are built on top of MapReduce, like Hive, Spark, um, things like that. So uh, that's where we are now. But here is where we started uh, in in the early 2000s. So. Um, just as Netflix has evolved over the years, uh, data science at Netflix has also evolved over the years. Um, it wasn't called data science back then because data science, as a as a term of art, uh, didn't didn't exist. But we'll we'll continue calling it that uh, since that's what most people understand. Um, and in fact, our earliest data science efforts were focused on recommendations. Um, Back then, there was no streaming or play data to directly use as a signal uh, to recommend and suggest titles to a user. So we used information like the star ratings um, to make recommendations to people. Um, additionally, um, talking about content demand, um, back then there was essentially no data science to be done for content demand. Um, during the DVD days, essentially what we would do is um, put everything that we knew about in the world up on the website, and if enough people added it to their queue, um, we would go out and buy the DVD. We didn't actually have to have the DVD in order to uh, let people add it to their queue. Um, and when it reached a certain threshold, we would just go out and buy it. Um, and there was a simple formula that essentially took into account the number of times a title was added to a queue and how often DVDs break in the mail, and that was it in terms of predicting uh, content demand. Um, so everything changed when Netflix started streaming. Um, we started making recommendations based completely on streaming data. Um, this culminated in the Netflix prize where we uh, challenged people to um, take our existing personalization algorithm and to beat it by more than 10%. Um, and the winning team would get a um, million dollars. Um, this was a really, it was a cool era uh, to be working on this. Um, it spawned a ton of really good ideas, a lot of interest in machine learning. In a lot of ways, it was sort of the prototype for uh, Kaggle and Kaggle competitions. Um, but ultimately, the Netflix prize was never implemented uh, at Netflix. Um, and this is, I think, one of the things that, um, that, that is brought home when you start doing data science in the real world, which is that there is a trade-off between accuracy and functionality. So um, the final winners of the Netflix prize had an ensemble model that had more than, I think, more than 100 individual models um, that went into it. Uh, it couldn't be productionalized. Um, and one of the things that you have to consider um, is that data science in the real world is, is not just about accuracy. It's also about latency and ease of maintenance and ease of production. And so um, you might find that you have an algorithm that is, in fact, worse, maybe 1% worse. But if it's 10 times faster, um, that's a trade-off that you might be willing to make. Um, all of this. It's not to say that uh, that we haven't made a lot of progress since then. The algorithms and machine learning behind recommendation and personalization today um, are, in fact, incredibly sophisticated and nuanced. Um, personalization today is not just uh, a single algorithm. There are algorithms that determine not only what content gets displayed to you in which rows, but which order those rows appear on your page. Um, the data science uh, teams here touch essentially every part of the Netflix experiment uh, experience. So um, what you see in this large uh, billboard um, experience or um, 
uh, how what images you see. We A/B test what images uh, are are placed for each piece of content. Um, there, that data science also touches uh, streaming and quality of experience. So if we know that you're streaming on a, on a poor internet connection, we'll change the encoding algorithm so that you get fewer rebuffers. Um, messaging, so messaging and discovery, so how we email you when a new title becomes available. All of that is touched by data science at Netflix. Um, and it's all geared towards trying to make great recommendations of great content. Um, and one of the fundamental truths here is that in order to recommend great content, uh, you have to have great content in the first place. We can only recommend the titles that we actually have available on the service, um, unlike in our DVD days. And uh, there are, um, so the, the question here becomes, um, what titles can we either buy or create to optimize our users' joy? And that really is the metric we think about at Netflix, is what brings people joy? Um, and we think that that, of course, highly correlates with things like growth and retention and, and those business-oriented metrics. Um, but the question becomes, what do we produce or buy? And the two pieces to that puzzle are our original content and our licensed content. Um, regardless of, of um, whether something comes to us as an original or as something that has already been created, it has to go through a selection process. And uh, that's a little bit what I wanted to talk to you about today in terms of what we do on the content team, content science and algorithms team at Netflix. Um, so value attribution on a subscription service. Um, there is a real uh, difference between the way, um, for example, um, iTunes might value a piece of content versus us. iTunes, it's transactional. You pay $6.99 for a movie, and that's uh, the value that both you and iTunes are getting from it. Um, if you think about content, what makes content valuable traditionally, uh, you have things like the box office amount from uh, from a film, or um, for TV, uh, you have Nielsen ratings, which might help you figure out a target audience size, and then based on that um, target audience size and demographics, uh, figure out what a company like Budweiser might pay to reach, for example, the 25 to 35 year old men who watch Big Bang Theory. Um, they don't have as much data as we do, so even with this data, they don't know exactly who is watching their content. And additionally, it's suboptimal because even with the data they do have, they don't necessarily know um, how that converts to um, product purchase. So uh, Budweiser may know what they spent and how much time their ad got, and they may see sales rise, but they don't actually know the direct correlation between people who saw this ad and then went and bought uh, um, something from their brand. Netflix, on the other hand, has uh, a lot of ways to consider what makes content valuable. So the simplest version of this is you might say just, well, how many hours was it viewed? Um, this this gets become, this becomes tricky really quickly um, in terms of defining a metric because uh, defining a metric the wrong way can lead you to really bizarre incentives. So um, with something like how many hours is something viewed, um, there are ways that, that you could start 
changing the kinds of content you make available to optimize for that metric that really are not good for the service in the long run. So, um, for example, you may find people view more hours of longer contents. So instead of making two-hour movies, we should make six-hour movies or eight-hour movies. Or, um, for example, we could try um, the most viewed things on YouTube, which I think the most viewed video on YouTube is Gotham Style, uh, which is great for YouTube, but maybe not great for Netflix. Um, you could also ask things like how many people finished watching it. So um, if they start something and it gets viewed a lot, but none of them finish it, is it really a valuable piece of content? Uh, you could ask, did people sign up for Netflix to watch it? Did it generate new subscribers? Did it win awards? How do you value um, the, the, um, the contribution of winning an Emmy or, or an Academy Award? Um, is it popular with critics? Is it binge-worthy? Is it a cult favorite like uh, Arrested Development or the reboot of Wet Hot American Summer? Um, so given that we have so much more data, um, we can also construct more elaborate metrics. We can, we can actually look at all of these things when we try and think about what makes content valuable. Um, one thing that you might hear sometimes um, in terms of Netflix notion of value is this idea of content efficiency, um, which is simply stated the value of a piece of content to Netflix divided by its cost. So um, if it's over one, then we're getting more value than what it cost us. And if it's less than one, uh, we're getting less value than what it cost us. Um, and uh, luckily for us, um, our original content is in fact some of our most um, efficient content. Um, that, that ends up being a good thing for us because it means people come to the service for content um, front uh, content from Netflix, um, and if it's only available, you're probably more likely to to stick with the service. Um, given given this context, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about how we actually um, predict predict a demand and predict uh, value for a piece of content from Netflix. I'm going to start with the um, the case when something is licensed. So this is non-original content. It's been made um, by a studio um, separately from us, and we are just acquiring the streaming rights. Um, that we do, actually, is um, we acquire a database of essentially all available titles that we'd like to make a prediction about. Um, we have a, a, a database um, of uh, all available titles and all kinds of inf any kind of information that we actually can find about that title, um, and this actually becomes a massive um, data acquisition and engineering problem. Um, you've probably heard the truth at this point that uh, eighty percent of data science is actually uh, data engineering and data cleaning, and that's certainly true for what we do. Um, our data engineering teams are really the backbone of data science at Netflix. Um, it is a it is a massive data engineering and sometimes even data science challenge just to do the entity resolution. Um, so, for example, uh, with uh, the a movie named Frozen, um, if you don't successfully uh, uh, dedupe, um, not even dedupe, um, successfully differentiate between things that are talking about a uh, small budget horror film set in the mountains versus a um, massively popular Disney movie about two princesses, um, you can imagine that um, the 
garbage out, the predictions we might make about a title named Frozen um, would be incredibly garbled and unclear uh, if we don't get this right in the first place. Um, you, you can't do this by simple string matching. Another one of my favorite examples here um, is uh, this Pocahontas example. So um, you might think, okay, well, so all you need is maybe a title and a release here. Um, unfortunately, in 1995, there were four titles released um, named Pocahontas, all of which were geared at kids, um, all of which, uh, or three of which were animated titles. Um, if you're interested in this kind of problem, I recommend uh, a Google search for record, record linkage methods. Um, there is actually an entire body of literature on how you take different data sources um, that may or may, be, may or may not be talking about the same entities um, and merge them together in the best possible way. So that being said, um, this is a moment in which I would like to, to uh, plug the fact that the data engineers and data engineering teams at Netflix are really spectacular. Um, and they do, they do a really great job of making the data scientist's job easier. Um, so once we have conquered that part of the data acquisition and cleaning challenge, um, we start putting together our demand features. And um, essentially, we try and find anything that we think might have some signal. So that it would include um, past performance on Netflix if it was a previously licensed title. Um, if we've never licensed it, we might consider the past performance of similar titles on Netflix. So um, if we're looking to license a horror film, we would look at how other horror films have done. Um, we could include uh, things like broadcast ratings, the box office, um, the talent involved, reviews, awards. Um, if we can get in our hands on it, we will try to uh, try to include it in our models. Um, our predictive models, I'm sorry to say that I, uh, I can't actually get too much into the details of what specifically we do. Um, but what I can tell you is that um, if you have read about it, we have probably tried it or are currently using it um, in some area in Netflix. So um, we are using everything from your basic regression models, uh, gradient boosted decision trees, um, a lot of matrix factorization methods, clustering, uh, LDA um, and NLP techniques, um, neural networks. Someone somewhere at Netflix is uh, is using that um, to help uh, to help make um, the Netflix user experience better. Um, so once we get a prediction for uh, for a piece of content, um, it actually doesn't stop there. Um, I think this is another one of the um, the truisms about data science in the real world, uh, which is that uh, domain expertise matters hugely. Uh, it is not enough to just take uh, take your data and run it through a machine learning algorithm. Um, there is a lot that isn't captured in your data. Um, there's a lot that can't be captured in a model. Um, and, in, and in addition to that, um, we're still working within a really old Hollywood system. So um, sometimes you, you may get a prediction and based on the cost, you might say, well, that's inefficient, we shouldn't buy it. Um, but if it's part of a larger deal, um, because we're trying, you know, if we buy film A, we might be able to get film B, or um, we're doing it to build a relationship with a studio or, or with um, a, um, an actor or a director or something like that, um, we may proceed for other reasons. Um, 
buying deals uh, uh, and streaming rights deals are, are as I've come to appreciate, um, incredibly uh, complicated and nuanced. Um, and so the numbers actually are the, the beginning. So the predictions are actually the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. Um, one of the things that uh, that we have had to um, address at Netflix um, as part of content demand is that we don't have a single content demand model. Uh, we actually have many, many content demand models, similar to the fact that we have many, many recommendation models and many uh, personalization models. And so, uh, excuse me, um, uh, in order to deal with that, we actually ended up building a custom learning um, custom machine learning framework um, in order to uh, address both the multiplicity of models and um, the fact that we're dealing with uh, with big data um, things that won't just fit on a laptop and so we actually have a YAML based um, machine learning framework um, and YAML stands for yet another machine uh, markup language and um, essentially what it allows us to do is uh, to write config files that specify and separate um, feature engineering for training, um, the algorithm uh, and model that we're using for training, uh, feature engineering for scoring, and our scoring, um, which in this context we mean um, getting a final prediction um, um, in a production environment, uh, to make those all separable and repeatable. Um, one of the really cool things about this framework is also that it's inheritable, um, which means that if you have a base model, um, you can have sub-models that inherit from that. And so if you wanna say, um, add a feature um, that turns out to help a lot in the prediction problem, you can just add it to the base model and that feature will flow through um, to all of the uh, the subsequent models without you having to go through and change each one. Um, I know we're hoping to open source this at some point, but it is not there yet. Um, before I run out of time, I also wanted to briefly address um, our a value prediction problem for originals, um, which is a much more difficult problem than the licensing value uh, prediction problem. We have much less data, so um, if something hasn't been uh, created yet, we have no box office or review data to use. Um, it's a moving target, so ideas and scripts can change wildly between when they're pitched and when they're actually made. Um, and the execution can vary widely with talent and budget. Um, a director, um, same script with two different directors could turn out to be very different. Um, just briefly, an example of uh, of how messy this uh, this can get. Um, we have the example here of the Revenant. Um, the book was optioned even before publication in 2001, uh, where Samuel Jackson was attached to the lead role. Um, in 2007, it appeared on the blacklist, which is uh, this annual list in Hollywood of the 100 best unproduced scripts. Um, at that point, Christian Bale was attached to the lead role. Uh, it wasn't until four years later that it finally was funded um, at $60 million, and Leonardo DiCaprio got attached to be the star. Um, it was finally filmed in 2014 at twice its original budget. Um, and then in 2016, it won tons of Academy Awards and made $530 million at the box office. So this is a really messy process. Um, and, uh, and trying to figure out how to use data science to optimize anything in a process like that uh, gets really tricky. Um, one thing that we do is that we instead of trying to attack it from that sort of first principles approach,
language. Um, we try to find comparable titles and use what we know about those titles in order to predict how we think an original title might do. So um, maybe when we were um, originally looking at the House of Cards script, we say, well, um, this is kind of like the West Wing meets Breaking Bad. Well, those are titles we've actually had available on the site, and we know that the people who watch those titles also watch um, Mad Men and The Blacklist and Homeland. And so then we might make predictions on the basis of how well these comparable titles perform um, with adjustments from from um, domain experts who who might know more about this process. So um, we are trying to inject more science into this process um, via um, techniques like matrix factorization of play data and, and natural language processing um, and stuff like that. But this is as much of an art as a science. Um, so for example, um, you know, if you ask an algorithm uh, without having uh, some additional nuance or understanding of what's going on here. Um, what's a title comparable to Twister and Jaws? Uh, you might end up with something like Sharknado, which, while I'm sure is a, a high quality movie, um, you might not consider to be quite the same level of, uh, of production as movies like Twister and Jaws. Um, and, uh, and lest you think, uh, I'm totally joking here. This is an actual example from an experiment we ran um, here. Um, another thing that comes up a lot when we talk about data science and content at Netflix is this question of, can data science create content? Do we have an algorithm that just spits out scripts or tells us yes or no um, on, a, on you know, whether or not a script is good? And, and, uh, um, and so, for example, there was uh, uh, a... Um, a, a, a screenwriter, uh, sorry, an AI screenwriter that wrote um, a script uh, that got made into a film. Um, and it was, uh, you should go watch it, it's, it's available online. Um, and uh, it's, it's entertaining, you wouldn't exactly call it um, great content. Um, and so the answer to is Netflix doing this? Um, no. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, the way that we handle uh, content prediction is that that's where the conversation starts. That's not where the conversation ends. Um, and we we really do pride ourselves on giving a lot of creative freedom um, to creative people and letting and getting out of their way to let them do their job. Um, but data can definitely help in choosing content. Um, when we think about um, both what we're doing and what's next in terms of using uh, data science to create content. Uh, you know, we're thinking about um, how can we use data science to optimize uh, the catalog? Um, you know, in the extreme example of having a catalog that is, for example, only comedies, right? Uh, you know that that's not ideal. Um, additionally, uh, we are also thinking about um, how do you identify valuable content earlier in the pipeline? Um, and this is really about under, about giving our creatives better tools and letting them better do their job. Um, so I see now I've got a bunch of questions, so I will um, I will wrap it up here and see if I can uh, start taking questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, thank you so much for that. Uh, I just wanted to quickly interject and say, I uh, really I'm glad you sort of gave a call out there for Narcos, Marseille, and of course House of Cards, which are some of my <laughs> favorite Netflix shows. Um, I'd love to. Actually, I'd love to just ask you a question. When you were talking sure. about um, 
how do you measure uh, sort of uh, predicting license content uh, and sort of the machine learning models you did there? Can you share with us how you measure success? Is that sort of number of people who watch the show watch the show or what is the Y variable? Um, yeah, the Y variable um, it actually varies a lot. So um, we actually internally have um, many different metrics um, related to to content demand. So um, that includes both. Um, Thing, like some of the really obvious choices, like number of number of hours uh, that a piece of content is watched, as well as looking at um, uh, essentially we look at uh, 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 a um, share metrics. So um, what share of viewing did this particular piece of content get? Um, because a, a metric like raw view hours, as you can imagine, can get really tricky uh, when your uh, uh, service is growing uh, its number of subscribers every year. So. Uh, content hours will go up uh, uh, regardless. And so you have to, to disambiguate those cases. Got it. Very cool. Um, and then you also said you wanted to measure user joy. How, how do you measure? Is there sort of like an ultimate user joy metric? Uh, there, if only. Um, no, that is, I think that that is, um, that is really, so, so that is that is how we like to to think about um, what we're doing here, and there are a lot of ways to measure user joy, um, and we've and we've thought about all of them, I think, um, and they're all imperfect because it is it is really a nebulous concept, um, but the the point of framing it that way is really to remind ourselves that. Um, focus sort of really intense focus on any one specific metric um, for too long will eventually lead you astray you'll end up with with really bizarre outcomes if you get too focused on one slice of the business yeah god no i think that's very well said so i will just read off some of the questions that uh the attendees had um so uh, and thank you for all those of you who attended. I know we had over 2,000 folks sign up. Um, so very thankful that you were able to make it. And I hope you have enjoyed it so far. Um, so from Mayas227, how many experiments do you, uh, I guess you guys at Netflix, run concurrently? Is there always an experiment running? Um, if you think about Netflix as a whole and not just content data science, um, yes, there is always an experiment running. Um, and and, and many, many dozens or hundreds of experiments are typically being run concurrently. Um, so from Josh, uh, if the $1 million model, that is the winning Netflix model, was never implemented, what were some of the key learnings from the competition that made it into production? You know, this was really, um, this was really before my time. Uh, I, I think that what we, um, so, uh, so I think that what we learned from this is actually that uh, that what you um, that what you what you rated as a star rating and what your behavior actually is on the service um, are actually um, not the same thing. Um, so, and I'm sure you you all experience this, this as well. I have what I call my aspirational queue. So I have tons of stuff in my queue that I've basically put in there because I'd like to think of myself as like, oh, I'm the kind of person who watches high-end classic movies. Um, and so I have all this stuff in my queue of, you know, like, you know, 
also why we have Casablanca at the moment, but it's like all of these, you know, sort of classic movies that I feel like I should be watching. Whereas if you look at what I'm actually watching, you know, it's, um, you know, Sherlock and, uh, you know, uh, I was going to say, what's your guilty pleasure here? Yeah. You know, the great British baking show. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, and so what I say I'm going to watch and what I actually watch turn out to be, uh, different things. And so once you have that insight, it changes the way you think about recommendations. Uh, and so does that mean you, are you then trying to, uh, generate content or sort of, acquire or create content for the aspirational cue or for the guilty pleasures? You know, we are trying to, that's actually, it's, a, it's an interesting question because it gets back to our question of value and, and when is something valuable? Um, and, and I think it's an open question if, you know, is a piece of content valuable um, if lots of people like seeing it on the service but don't watch it? And I, you know, that's, that's a tough question for us to answer. That's fair enough. Um, so from at Gualva, I'm going to butcher this, Gualva Reina, uh, Netflix has different titles for different countries. Is that just because of the copyright issues or do you calculate a score for each country based on each country's data? This is a, this is a patchwork of things. So um, particularly for uh, licensed content, um, it often is not available to us in every country to to buy streaming rights. Um, so oftentimes, like a local broadcaster will have already bought the rights in that particular region or country, and they're just simply not available for us to purchase. So we might purchase it everywhere, but in two or three regions because we simply can't do it. Um, there are some titles that we will only acquire um, in certain regions if we if if the economics of it don't work out to acquire it everywhere so it's a little bit of both and i guess the sort of the determination of which region to acquire it for is definitely driven by the work that you and your group are doing yep um so from at scodium i think the question is uh when you're thinking how do you think about for new content how do you think about the factors that you're using in your models um how do you know that you've sort of come up with good factors uh, factors sort of meaning uh uh, features um, and you know uh, and sort of identifying users that might map on map more heavily onto sets of features. How do you think about that? It's I mean in some ways um, it's not that different because uh, at the end of the day we are we are setting this up as a machine learning problem, right? So um, we have we have a data set, we have a model, we have an error metric at the end, um, and we do a lot of experimentation with features. So if we add a feature and it helps or um, and it hurts, then then you know how to make that decision accordingly. Um, the, the difference between our license and originals um, prediction problems is really about data availability. Um, and so um, uh, you know, I think that you'll find in a lot of uh, data science contexts, um, the fanciest the fanciest algorithm algorithm in the world uh, doesn't help you if you're uh, if if you it wouldn't help you as much as as expanding your data set tenfold. So um, we certainly see, you know, that truism here as well. Yeah, absolutely. I know that. Um, I forget. Uh, who it was, I'm picturing him right now, but I can't rem remember his name, uh, had this great expression of the uh, 
the unreasonable effectiveness of data. Exactly, uh, like, the unreasonable effectiveness of data. We find that to be as true as anybody. Um, yeah, and then uh, any word on when the custom sort of ML machine learning framework, I think you called it Curie on the slides? Yeah, it won't be called that if if we do end up open sourcing it. Um, no, I know that the that we at Netflix we really do believe in open source um, and and open sourcing as much um, of our um, internal systems as we can. The Netflix blog, if people are interested, there's a Netflix tech tech blog that talks a lot about stuff that we've open sourced in the past. Um, there's no immediate timeline for for us on the ML framework though.